You're listening to Season 6, Episode number 6 of Strike the Match. In this episode, I continue with the series, The Apostolic Imagination. Today's topic, Rethinking Location. The Bible tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, but people are everywhere. How does the apostolic imagination influence our thinking about location? So with that in mind, let's... Welcome to Strike the Match with teacher and missiologist, Dr. J.D. Strike the Match is a podcast that addresses matters related to missions, innovation, and leadership. Now here's J.D. So welcome back. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Strike the Match. And if this is your first time joining, I certainly appreciate all new listeners out there. Thank you so much for jumping into uh, this Season 6. We're uh, in Episode 6 right now, part of a uh, series that I'm doing this uh, season, a little bit different than what I've done in the previous five seasons, and that I am sort of running with a theme, uh, The Apostolic Imagination. The reason I'm doing that is uh, because that's a book that I am working on. Actually, I do have news on that. Um, very excited to share with you that um, as of, I believe it was yesterday, I have finished uh, the book. And so it now goes to the, um, the editor, excuse me, the publisher, and they will take it through the editorial work. And so it'll be a while before it will be released, which is part of the reason why I'm doing this um, series in this season to sort of give you uh, an idea of what um, what's on my mind and my heart at this point in time in my writing, and at the same time, welcome uh, welcoming the feedback that I have received from from many of you asking questions and making comments and things of that nature. And so, please continue to follow up with me on that. I certainly certainly appreciate it. But yes, I am excited to know that I I, I was actually able to finish before my deadline. So <laughs> there we go. Um, but today we are continuing thinking about um, this notion of location. So um, what's going on out there? Well, it's, it's, I don't know, for some of you, this may be hard to believe. Some of you, this may be, uh, you know, common, common knowledge. And that is uh, the majority of evangelical missionary labors uh, that are uh, taking place. So missionary activities that are taking place right now are actually being conducted among reached people groups. The majority of what's going on in the evangelical world is uh, happening among reached peoples, not the unreached people groups that we've been hearing about since the 1970s. And I think it is very safe to say that beyond the evangelical community, uh, when you get into uh, the other um, communities of faith that make up the body of Christ today, I think that you will find that that truth is the same as well in those uh, circles of influence, and that is much of what's going on, no, not much, the majority, majority of what's going on even in those branches of the Christian faith 
is taking place among reached people groups when it comes to what we have traditionally referred to as our missionary activity. So whenever we think about the apostolic imagination, we are drawing heavily from a Romans 15 verse 20 concept, an idea where Paul talks about it is his preference to work where a foundation, a gospel foundation, has not been established, that he is drawing heavily from uh, the book of Isaiah, drawing heavily from his own personal calling, uh, his calling to uh, take the gospel to Jew and Gentiles, even though he spends a great deal of his time with the Gentiles, and from the book of Isaiah, whereby Isaiah in the Old Testament talks about being um, being a servant and the uh, concept, the notion of the great ingathering of the Gentiles before uh, the day of the Lord, before the, uh, the judgment day comes. And Paul picks up on that, and in the book of Romans he talks about how what he is doing among the Gentiles, not establishing uh, or not building on someone else's foundation, uh, is actually a part of the process during the hardening of the hearts of, of, of the Jewish people, that they may be provoked to, to a jealousy, a holy jealousy, and uh, come to repentance after seeing so many Gentiles coming to, to place faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, so all of that is really sort of the backstory behind um, this Romans 15, 20 idea of Paul's saying that he does not want to build on another person's foundation, that he is, he's taking the gospel as far and as fast as he can because he sees himself in line in that continuity with the prophets in the Old Testament, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies uh, of the Gentiles coming into uh, the kingdom of God. And so, so that's, that's sort of the thought that I want to throw out there with you at the outset of this, uh, this recording, because in order to talk about the notion of the apostolic imagination and location, uh, we have to begin to just ask some questions. Well, you know, what does the Bible have to say about this issue of geography? And so, so clearly Paul talks about this. He talks about this in Romans 15. After he talks about not wanting to build on another person's foundation, he talks about the fact that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, sort of this semicircle, this arch, if you will, um, if you trace it across the map, he talks about he, um, he has preached the gospel, and there's, there's no place in that swath of geography left for him to work, and he's writing to the Roman Christians, and he says to them, hey, prepare, um, you know, prepare for my arrival, I'm going to come and visit you, and I hope that you will be able to uh, help me on, partner with me in my apostolic work as I continue on to Spain, because there is no place left for me in, in this, these regions. Now, Clearly, Paul is not the only one that's working among the Gentiles, and clearly Paul is not saying that everyone has heard the gospel. Uh, but what we see is that in all likelihood, what we get from the text, what we read, is in all likelihood uh, there have been these kingdom communities, these local expressions of the body of Christ, these local churches that have been established uh, throughout this area that Paul has been laboring in, and they are now able to take the gospel and live out the kingdom ethic in their local context, in their local communities, and, and be a part of, of transforming society and sharing the gospel. 
And so Paul is continuing on to a place whereby the location consists of an absence of the gospel and an absence of churches. And so so to begin this conversation, we have to think about that and recognize that, but at the same time, we also have to think about the scope of the Great Commission. So when you begin to look at the, the Great Commission text, the Great Commission passages in the New Testament, so we could go all the way back to the Old Testament and look at the mission of God there. We obviously don't have time uh, to do all of that. But if you look at just the, the New Testament Great Commission text, so clearly we think about Matthew 28, 19 through 20, uh, or 18, 19, and 20, about going and making disciples of all nations and baptizing them, teaching them to obey. But you get other passages beyond that that are found in the Scriptures as well. So, for example, you have Mark 13.10, Mark uh, stating that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and also in Mark 14.9, where the woman anoints Jesus before his uh, his passion account, and he makes a statement that where the gospel is proclaimed, there's this you know this prediction, this conviction, this belief that the gospel is going to be proclaimed. Where the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be a testimony in memory of her. Then you get Luke 24, verses 46 through 49, where Luke records, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then tying that in, for example, it's not obviously a gospel, but tying it into Luke's other work in Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, this notion of uh, their witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to, to the uttermost parts of, you know, of, the, of, the, of the world. So you get that. Then you get John. So you kind of come to John 20, verse 21, for example. Jesus speaks and says, as you, talking to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Um, then in John 17, 18, you know, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So, so what do we have? We have this concept of the world. We have this concept of all nations, this notion of preaching, this notion of making disciples, this notion of going, this notion of bearing witness and proclaiming, all running through these Great Commission texts that we see in the Gospels in the book of Acts. And so it, it leads us to ask the question, well, what is meant by the issue of geography here? Because clearly the text says all nations go into all the world, if you will. So, so what's taking place? What's, you know, what's happening here? Well, an interesting um, New Testament scholar, or a New Testament scholar that's written a very interesting and very massive uh, work on uh, the mission of Jesus and the Twelve and the mission of Paul— uh, is uh, Erkhart Schnabel. Uh, Schnabel's work has been around for several years, two massive volumes. Um, in his uh, volume, volume number uh, one, he talks about, this is volume one, Jesus and the Twelve, the mission of Jesus and the Twelve. He talks about the notion that, um, and I'll get, read you a quote here from him. I think it's really fascinating. Uh, when you think about the notion of Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, that geographical expansion that's happening there, you know, he, he makes a statement. He says that people in the first century were rather well-informed about numerous regions between the border of the Roman Empire and 
the, quote, ends of the earth, end quote. And so he goes on in his research, and he's done extensive amount of research on this notion of geography and the apostolic work uh, that we see in the New Testament. And, and he says that the, the terminal points on the map would have, have been understood for the most part uh, with, uh, with Gaul and Spain and Germania and Britannia, Britannia, depending on what part of the world you're from, is how you want to pronounce it. Um, those would be falling in the western area of the map. You have the Arctic, also, um, for example, reference to Scythia in the New Testament. The Arctic would be found in the north, Ethiopia to the south, and India and China to the east. And and so he goes on in his his studies, and he says, you know, this is this is what would have been common knowledge in the first century when you think about north, south, east, and west. And, and he goes on to say that the first century disciples would have embraced the Greco-Roman understanding of the ends of the earth. And so it would have been more than just the Jewish understanding of thinking about where the Jewish diaspora was located. In other words, you know, throughout the centuries, the Jewish people— uh, as a result of being exiled and carried off and, and moving and things of that nature, had, had been scattered from uh, Israel, scattered from Jerusalem into other parts of the world. And so what Schnabel is saying is that the first century believers, when they would have heard these statements about the world, the nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, go into all the world uh, to share the good news, they would have been thinking in terms of the, the common Greco-Roman understanding. And it would not have been just thinking about the Jewish, the locations of the Jewish communities throughout the world. Which brings us to the other uh, concept, and that is, um, some scholars have said, well, when they would have heard the nations, they would have been thinking about the Jews scattered among the nations. And I, I do not think that that is the case. I think that what you see, the notion of ethne, ta ethne, um, panta ta ethne in Matthew's account, is that the nation, the ethne, would have included both Gentiles and Jews as well. So wherever, location, wherever you find Jews and Gentiles, those are the places whereby you are to engage in the apostolic work of the church, making disciples of all Jews, all Gentiles. Now, there's another thing that I think is important for us to keep in mind when we come to the New Testament and we think about this notion of going into all the world to, to make disciples when it comes to the issue of location, and that is the Old Testament passage in Genesis chapter 10, what's been referred to as the Table of Nations, would have had bearing, would have had some, some gravity on that first century mind, especially the Apostle Paul uh, and those that were very familiar with uh, with Torah. And so when you go back to Genesis chapter 10, what do you find? Well, you find that there is a list of basically 70 nations that are described there in Genesis chapter 10 uh, that have scattered throughout the world. And there are some scholars that think this is what Paul would have had in mind when he used the word ethnos, the word nations. And again, I'll refer back to Schnabel here. He makes a, a good point, and he said that you know, this clearly would have been influential in Paul's thinking, but Paul, in his actions where he travels, what he says and what he does, does not clearly reflect 
just Paul being knowledgeable about the table of nations in Genesis 10. Uh, in other words, there is um, there's a very diverse geographical uh, realm in which we see uh, Paul Paul working in his missionary work, so to speak. So, um, with that kind of in the background, just in our thinking, just kind of running through that fairly quickly, let, let's think about this notion of nations and people groups today, and then let's think let's think about the apostolic imagination and the issue of strategy. So, I know for for many of you, um, the whole understanding of of how the shift, the interpretive shift, has happened uh, since uh, the 1970s in evangelical circles when it comes to looking at Great Commission texts. And so, the notion of not interpreting the passages to refer to uh, countries on a map, but to interpret those passages in the concept of people groups or ethnic and language groups uh, is is what is is what's come about what's what's developed and so so again for those of you not familiar with what I'm, with what I'm talking about so for the longest time go and make disciples of all nations it was it was interpreted primarily to be in terms of a of a geopolitical entity on on the globe so to speak and so uh, you know, in Jesus' time, there were a certain number of nations. You know, a thousand years ago, there were a certain number of nations. And even today, there are, you know, uh, that n- that number is shifting. It's always changing. And so today, it's just under 200 countries. But if you go back to 2,000 years ago, you know, the number was different. And so so what happened, what was taking place in the latter 20th century is that there was a great deal of reflection both on the field and on the, also on the text. And it eventually resulted in a shift what became to be what became known as people group thinking. And so the the basic unit of evangelization was not a country, but rather a, a subgroup of of people that comprise the population of a given country. So it wasn't, hey, go and make disciples of all nations. Let's okay, therefore Russia is a nation. Let's let's see one church planted in Russia and therefore we've reached Russia. Now we can move on to another nation. It wasn't that understanding of all. Now that's what it was historically, the, the concept of of thinking more in terms of, of those geopolitical entities, but it was more in terms of, hey, Russia is Russia is made up of a a, a large grouping of or a, a variety of groups of people that make up the population of that country. And so uh, what what are those groups and what do they have in common? And so when you begin to break them down and look at them ethnically and linguistically, uh, you see uh, these commonalities. It eventually leads to a shift in the way we think about global disciple-making. So in an article that uh, just recently came out in the Evangelical Missions Quarterly, Dave Datema and Lynn Barlotti uh, write this article called The People Group Approach. and they make this statement that this shift from looking at the text and thinking about missions in terms of nations to to actually in terms of people groups, they say that this was the most significant thought. Excuse me, the most significant thought innovation in 20th century missiology, uh, and it, it was incredibly significant in that it moved um, the organization and structures of how so many across the world engaged with the nations. Now, clearly, um, Ralph Winter uh, was a leading uh, proponent 
in the 70s, 1974, Luzon won, giving the uh, presentation on the highest priority being cross-cultural evangelization among the hidden peoples and brought a great deal of attention to what would become uh, the unreached people groups. Uh, you know, in the late 70s, we have the development of uh, the Mission Advanced Research and Communications Center, uh, which was a division of World Vision at the time. They began publishing uh, annual unreached people group directories, so groups throughout the world that were unreached. Uh, they began publishing those on a regular basis. By the time we get into the 1980s, we are getting more specific about uh, definitions of unreached people groups. When you hit 1982, you have a, another significant event in the moment of this concept of location moving from countries to location moving to unreached people groups when David Barrett published the World Christian Encyclopedia. It was the first comprehensive list of people groups by 1991, you have the uh, church planting progress indicators that are developed by the International Mission Board in which they are keeping track of a database of unreached people groups, defining unreached people group as a group less than 2% evangelical. And then also in 1995, you have the Joshua Project data set uh, started and was developed listing unreached people groups as those that are less than or equal to 2% evangelical and less than or equal to 5% Christian adherent. So, so that's some of the development during that period of time, bringing us up through uh, the 1990s. Um, we see that uh, today, where are we? We see that today, uh, among most evangelicals, the common understanding of, of about 7,000 about 7,000 unreached people groups exist in the world. Again, depending on what database you're looking at, um, that's roughly 4.5 billion people on the planet. And, and I'm giving you the stats that are coming from the International Mission Board, which would be people groups that are less than 2% evangelical. So about 7,000 unreached people groups making up 4.5 billion people on the planet. Now, um, R.W. Lewis, um, in an article that she uh, just recently published, she talks about the need to get even more specific when we talk about unreached people groups. And so she has brought the language of frontier peoples to uh, the forefront, basically saying that frontier peoples are a subset of the unreached people groups. And they are the neediest of the neediest, so to speak. In other words, if the unreached people groups are uh, needy, uh, the frontier people groups are neediest, if you will. My superlative <laughs> there. Um, so it gets a little bit awkward in the, in the language. But basically what you have with frontier people groups is that they comprise about a quarter of the global population. Among them, there are no movements of people to Christ, churches being planted, that they comprise, their Christian population is less than 0.1% of the population. So unreached people groups, 2% or less, frontier peoples, less than 0.1% of the population is Christian. And the work that is going to be required to engage them is always 
always cross-cultural. So even among unreached people groups, you, know, you can have an unreached people group whereby there are churches that are planted among them, and those churches are able to, to engage their own uh, without crossing significant cultural gaps uh, because the churches are started among them, even though they're still considered unreached. Uh, with the frontier peoples, it's, it's going to require the cross-cultural work that's out there. So then that brings us to the strategy question, the strategy thought of, the, of this podcast. And that is, okay, so we live in a world whereby um, there are a lot of people. And let me say this, just, and just to be clear so that, so that there's no misunderstanding, you know, all are lost without Christ, but not all—excuse me, let me say this way. All are lost without Christ, but all lostness is not the same. So, for example, evangelism is needed wherever people are found. Unbelievers, they exist in Birmingham, Alabama. They also exist in Rabat, Morocco. However, the apostolic imagination is, is governed by a stewardship that is related to the lack of gospel foundation, gospel access, in view of the global need. So need is everywhere. It's, it's here in Birmingham, and it's in Morocco. But all need is not the same. Some locations are home to people groups who are needier than others. Access is, is critical, access to the gospel. In other words, people here in Birmingham, there are unreached people groups here in Birmingham that have migrated from all over the world. But the, their access to the gospel doesn't mean that they're less read. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're unbelievers. Yes, they're unbelievers. Um, but their access to the gospel is much more apparent, is easier to, to tap into than many uh, people groups throughout the world. And so, so I want us to, to recognize that, that, that all are lost without Christ, all need the gospel, all need Christ, but there are places on the planet whereby the needs are massive. Now, remember what I said at the beginning of this podcast, and that is, where, where is most of the work being done? Uh, by evangelicals, most of the work is, that is taking place is taking place among reached people groups. Uh, in fact, I, I referenced uh, Lewis's article earlier. I mean, she makes a statement in, in the article that out of every 30, out of every 30 missionaries, if I can use that term, out of every 30 missionaries that are sent, only one actually goes to uh, the, the unreached people groups. I think she's very specific and says goes to the frontier. Um, but only one, one out of 30. Actually, that may just be out of the unreached people groups altogether. So one out of 30. So 29 going to reached areas, areas whereby churches can continue to run with the gospel and spread the gospel. Um, so... So that's, that's, that's a reality, where we are. So where do we begin? How do we think in terms of, in, in light of this? The apostolic imagination understands geography in view of the people that are living there, all right? So keep that in mind. I mean, Christ did not die for the boundaries of villages and towns and cities. His substitutionary atoning sacrifice was for the world's sins, and so what's significant about villages, towns, and cities, and locations, geography, if you will, the significance is, the loca is that they contain people. People are found in those locations. And so 
So we have to understand that we do not go into context and areas just to start a church for the sake of starting another church in a community, uh, to go into a community and, and start um, religious structures, ecclesiastical organization for the sake of, of just, just doing it there. But it was, it's because people are there. So let me, ask, let me ask you to think about this. From a, from a wise stewardship perspective, I want you to think about what I refer to as the, um, the strategic filter. A lot of people in the world, where do we begin? What do we, what do we do? So the strategic filter is really made up of three guidelines. Guidelines is the magic word. These are not hard absolutes. They're guides. So let's talk about the strategic filter, and that is we begin with God's calling. So where is God calling the team to work throughout the world among the people? So you know, what, what's, what's the Lord doing in, in, in the calling of, of this group of people that are going to engage uh, the nations? Where's, where's the Spirit leading them? And I would say part of the strategic filter with guideline number one is that we assume the Great Commission, all right? So the team should assume the Great Commission. The apostolic imagination is concerned with being a witness for Christ in the world as they preach the gospel with the intention of making disciples. All right, so that's guideline number one. Guideline number two, is the team called to a hard soil? Now, all people are lost that do not know Christ and dead in their trespasses and sins. I got that. That's right. But not everyone responds, not every lost person responds to the gospel in the same way. Some are hostile toward it. Some are apathetic. Some are like the Philippian jailer. When they hear it, they say, what must I do to be saved? And so what we have to keep in mind is this notion of the question, is the team called to a hard soil area? And if that's the case, then that's where they need to go. They, they do not need to go to a place that is more, more receptive. I mean, if that's where the Spirit's leading them, go there. There are going to be teams, many teams, that are called to very resistant fields, whereby it may take years, maybe decades, before people come to faith. Uh, the groups may not be hostile. They may be hostile. They may not be hostile to the good news. Uh, their ignorance to the message, their social and cultural factors, whatever, it may require a lengthy time of proclamation. And teams that are called to resistant peoples are just as important as those teams that are laboring in areas where the people are very receptive to the gospel. However, you know, George Patterson, I think, is correct when he says we should ask the question, you know, what, what is the shortest possible route to plant a church that will spark a spontaneous movement to Christ? And what he's getting at is we need to think in terms of, all right, where's the Lord working whereby the people are more receptive to the good news? So that brings me to guideline number three. And that is, determine the neediest and the most receptive field. Determine the neediest and most receptive field. So what does that mean? It means that I think, again, given, given this strategic filter, these guides, that if the team is not called to a hard soil area, there's no specific leading that they need to be in Macedonia, so to speak, 
but they're assuming the Great Commission, and the Lord has laid before them the world, then I would say, okay, let's, let's begin to ask some questions here. Where is the need for the gospel the highest? And where is the receptivity the highest? In other words, where do those two matters overlap with one another? That among a particular people group, there's this incredibly high need for the gospel because it's non-existent. Churches are non-existent. And at the same time, they're very receptive or they're very open to hearing about this good news. If that is the case and you find those two elements overlapping among a people, I would say that should be priority number one for that team, where the gospel need is the highest, few evangelicals present, no evangelicals present, few, few to no churches present, no one ministering among this group, the frontier peoples, if you will, and there's a high level of receptivity. You say, well, how do you find out about receptivity if no one's laboring there? Well, you have to go and share the gospel and see how people respond, all right? But then, if that's not the case, what would be a second possible area to consider beginning, working in, a second possible group? Well, where is the need the highest and... Where is the receptivity low? So where's the highest need for a team to go where there's no foundation? And the receptivity of people may be low. They may be uh, apathetic. They may be hostile to this message of good news. And I would say let's keep those things in mind as we think in a wise steward kind of fashion about what it looks like to do apostolic work in the world. And so. Where's the need the highest? The people are the most receptive. And if we don't know about that or we cannot find that, then where is the need the highest and the receptivity may be low? All right. Well, I know I've unpacked a lot of things in this episode and uh, probably got some questions rolling around in your mind at this point in time. I usually do whenever I begin talking about the strategic filter. And so by all means, send me your questions. I would love to have that uh, ongoing correspondence with you. And so, hey, thanks so much for checking out this episode of Strike the Match. Lord willing, we'll continue in another episode related to the apostolic imagination. Bye. You have been listening to Strike the Match with J.D. You can find J.D. on Instagram, Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at J.D. underscore Payne. And if you'd like to check out more books, posts, and podcast episodes, visit jdpain.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite Android app or at iTunes. And we'd be honored if you would consider rating us or leaving comments. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time.